The Talk and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. Shop designer golf apparel, shoes and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands. Online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 36 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. In part four of the history of Dr. Alistair McKenzie, Augusta National. We kick off part four where we left off in part three. Yet another inflection point in McKinsey's career comes with the rare loss. In the 1929 U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach, in one of the rarest of occasions, Bobby Jones, at the height of his powers, lost to an unknown 19-year-old Nebraskan by the name of Johnny Goodman in his very first round of match play at the U.S. Amateur. Tully, how did this loss change golf design and golf design in history? Well, I mean, it 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 might be stating it too much, but he had already played Cypress Point by that point. He yeah. played a practice round with uh, Francis Wimay and um, probably Egan and Lapham. It sounds about right. Um, and they played, and then obviously after they played um, Pasatiempo, or Bobby Jones played Pasatiempo. The opening day, I believe, right? Correct. With Marion yeah. Hollins, I think, was in their group. Yeah. Um, Cyril Tolly, Tolly and a lady golfer that I can't think of. What was really fascinating is um, when when Jones comes out to play, he's out here for, you know, when back then when you travel, especially getting ready for, an, you know, a major at that time, he was out here. He played quite a bit of golf up and down the coast. And at one point um, in the newspapers, they ask him, Bobby, how's your experience out here? And can you, can you tell us a little bit about the golf courses that you played? And I'm going to, I saved this. I got a little thing on my computer here that I wanted to make sure I got this right. Oh yeah, that'd be great. And, um, so here's, this is just verbatim. And uh, like I, um, for me, this is, this was probably one of the coolest things I've, I've found in all the research I've done, just the way it's said. So simply, it just kind of sets the tone and kind of defines a moment that changes um, what we know for golf in regards to Augusta National. So this is where it goes. It goes, here's what Bobby Jones thought of golf courses he played over during his visit in California. So um, very sh- mo- all these answers are relatively short. I think they were asking for like one or you know a couple words, um, being in newspapers as well. So... Los Angeles Country Club, North Course, not so tough. Riviera, sporty. Lakeside in Los Angeles, 
Um, there's always confusion with the lakeside or lake course. Um, a fine test of golf. Um, that's a bear course uh, for for anybody. And then Pebble Beach, a beautiful course, scenically, but not as difficult as I was led to believe. Pasatiempo, sporty. San Francisco Golf Club, a really fine course. Cypress Point. I wish I had that course tucked away in my backyard in Atlanta. Wow. Good quote. And he gets it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that article. No, that's amazing. So that's that's September 13th, 1929. Wow. Yeah. Then they go through and they, they report his scores. L.A. Country Club, 74, Riviera, Regulation, Pebble Beach, um, 67, 500 par. Stands, at that time, stands as the official record of the course. Must have been a practice round. <laughs> they say he had the new record of 71 at Cyprus. I've got to mention where um, Egan shot 68 or 69 there later on. but um, Prior or, and, or uh, post that round? Do we know? It must have been at, well, maybe it was even before. Maybe, again, it's, an, it's Bobby it's, Jones. Yeah, it's a new, newspaper, so right, yeah. Him, yeah. He's a hero. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, Rightfully so. So there, there it is. I mean, he, in 29, he was, for all intents and purposes, he had already picked his architect. And um, based on that, if we're going to, I mean, go off of uh, one little um, comment that he made. but uh, I mean, it's a perfect comment, though. It is. I mean, it's it's very telling. In 29, huh? And um, as I mentioned that, there was something on Cypress Point, um, not to take away from that story. Um, it's very, there's couple, There's two stories I forgot to tell about Cypress. Jump in, please. And one of them is, and this guy kind of jumps ahead of all this, 1930, um, Cypress Point hosted the state amateur. And McKenzie was involved with the setup of the course and the, the way it was going to be prepared. And they went out, played the course. They shot, I don't I can't remember how many strokes more than they did at, at Pebble Beach, but everybody complained about the pin locations at Cypress Point. And in the papers, they were saying um, that players were critical of Cypress Point and the way Alistair McKenzie had set the whole occasions. And what was really interesting was both Max Bear and George Thomas both wrote back and, and said um, to the effect, I mean, and McKenzie wrote a whole thing in, I think it was Country Club Magazine, where he basically said, I did not set the pins, nor would I. Because George Thomas was setting, um, preparing um, for tournaments at some of his courses, it sounds like, at least one. And uh, and obviously, if anybody knows Max Bear, I mean, he's you don't want to get into a rules conversation with him, um, dead or alive. Um, he would, yeah, he he knew more about the rules than just about anybody. And um, but that it was just interesting. I mean, we there's not a lot of opportunity um, where the the golf architect gets to set up his course for a tournament. And it was just really interesting that here at Cypress Point, or there at Cypress Point, you know, they were, you know, they blamed him for the whole occasions uh, on the on the course, and he was pretty quick to say no. And then the other one was 
um, somebody had passed around some years ago um, some letters written between um, Morris um, and McKenzie. And what had happened was, where was it? Well, Joe Mayo was a superintendent at Pebble Beach. Joe Mayo also happened to be a construction superintendent that worked with Rainer in Hawaii. And it, these the letters are really interesting in that McKenzie basically says, um, um, kind of poo-poos the, um, the engineered golf course and says that an architect needs to be more artistic and natural. So um, those two guys didn't see eye to eye. And um, Mr. Morris was called in to kind of cool the jets and try to get these two guys to work together. But um, it's, it's interesting because um, it sounds like, um, you know, if McKenzie – McKinsey saw anything at MPCC at the time that Rainer had passed. It sounds like he probably would have bladed it and moved it over and naturalized it. Um, because I mean, maybe there was some hard feelings between the two from that. I mean, I'm reading into it, but it's, it's kind of hard not to when it's spelled out the way McKinsey does, but he was, you know, McKinsey was pretty adamant and, you know, Joe Mayo, both the guys were pretty adamant, and, and Morris was kind of in a pickle trying to appease both men. But, you know, one was his employee and one was um, somebody that worked for him, um, an outside contractor. So he he was, you know, from from what I have picked up over the years, it sounds like um, he was pretty steadfast in looking after the his employees. So it sounds like Mayo may have um, gotten through it better than McKinsey did. <laughs> Employee versus contractor. Yeah. You know, just trying to get back to the transition from Cyprus to Augusta. Um, obviously, there was a, a lot of stuff in between there. Um, you know, and, um, you know, McKinsey goes to Argentina, comes back, and he does Bayside in, in New York with um, Wendell Miller, somebody that I wish we knew more about. There's yeah, there's not, not there's not a lot of information of him as an engineer, is there? There isn't. He wrote quite a bit. I mean, um, I've got a you know number of articles he wrote for Greenkeeper magazine, which is was a precursor to our industry magazine for superintendents and um, to our our current um, magazine for our association. And um, I mean, he did it. You know, I think he was doing runways, and but he was based out of um, um, Columbus, Ohio in Chicago. Um, again, and then, you know, he did, he's, he's one of the few partners of all the partners that we know about. He's the one we know the least about, unfortunately. And, um, but they went to Bayside and, and as McKenzie says, they kind of, um, cut their teeth with, with, um, the heavy equipment, the dozers. And I think there was a mention where, um, they were trying to get equipment, and he said that um, Wendell Miller was he was on the phone calling all these places trying to get more equipment. And um, they built that course in Shape Green so fast out there. Um, I can't. There's an article which which gets into the. It was they were talking weeks and not months. And um, again, that comes back to the whole economy of 
design, construction, and maintenance um, that all kind of play hand in hand and, uh, you know, get the course built. It was a public course. So, you know, that's the, I mean, yeah, all these New Yorkers out here, I I don't know how how many of you are listening right now, but to think you could have had a Dr. Alistair McKenzie public course in your backyard. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, you have your own posse of tempo, essentially handmade by Wendell Miller and Dr. Alistair McKenzie. It's so sad. I believe it sits on, I looked this up before. I know it's near a school. I can't, I can't remember if it's on school grounds. And I think there's homes on that where, where the property once sat. Yeah. I just, I mean, at the end of the day, I just wish we can see more of that because it, there might be some information to glean from that as to, I mean, cause that course they had 20, you know, it was on similar terms to what they were doing at that, what they did at Augusta. Right. It's a precursor. You know, yeah. And, economy, economies of bunkers for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, the more, the more bunkers you build, you know, depending on what equipment you're using and how many manpower hours you want to put into it. Um, it can add to the time and, you know, drainage and all that stuff. So, but Bayside, um, is kind of like, I mean, it's like um, the lost course almost. I mean, there's an aerial or two that I've seen. I I've seen the there. aerial, yeah. But have like, you seen any ground level photos? I've got a newspaper article that shows the clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, it's tragic, <laughs> so it's right? It's really frustrating. And, you know, as things go, I mean, I'm always holding out. I mean, uh, um, New York's too big of an area not to have photos of that course. There's just no way they're not. They're, they're out there and they're mislabeled. That's got to be it. Yeah. And that or somebody's just sitting on them. They don't know they have them. Or, um, and they might not even be in, in New York at this point. Yes. Who knows? But it, it really was. It was like a test tract for Augusta National. I think it, you could. Yeah. McKenzie basically says that. I mean, he's like, we were able to work out how to use this, these new, you know, up until that point, I mean, I'm sure he had, I think there's mention at Valley Club, I think, of a dozer or of some sort going on there. But, you know, I know for sure at Metal Club we had um, horses and Fresno scrapers behind them, you know, picking up dirt and dropping it off. And Yeah. Um, you, you start moving stuff with dozers. Um, Steam Shovel McKenzie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of the broaching broaching the new world almost, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the mechanization is, is, you know, maybe that was the start of the downfall of golf course architecture. But. Eh, perhaps. I mean, but I, I, I always – when, when I find a great golf course and you find a great architect and you, you put those two together, I, mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that the better the land, the less you touch it. Mm-hmm. The more boring the land, the more you need to enhance it. And here he is dealing with, from what I understand, a fairly level piece of ground when he got it and added mm-hmm. features to it to make it interesting. So yeah, he was able he was able to adapt. Yeah, he had two extremes with Bayside and Augusta. I mean Oh my gosh, yeah. But both of them um both of them were completed in a very I mean, a very short period of time. What I found um, I just, you know, getting ready for this. I had not read all the Olmstead letters. I don't know if anybody used to read all of them. Did you find any? Did you look up on Bayside the Olmstead letters? I didn't even think about that. I did, 
I didn't think about that either. Yeah, um, maybe, that'd be fascinating. Maybe there's something there. Maybe they used them. Maybe they didn't. That's the you know, I wish as I mentioned, I wish Cypress Point had used uh, Olmstead, but they didn't. And uh, I mean, we'll see. I got that's a good point. I didn't think about that. But um, um, what's really interesting about you know going through the Olmstead stuff was just you know in early '31 and stuff, hearing them talk about. Um, the nursery property, the Berkmans, it was really surprising how much involvement the Berkmans still had after everything had become the golf club. Um, and what they were doing, on, I mean, the way they've connected the holes with the, 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 the plants that were in the nursery. And um, that was done almost immediately if you go through and read what they did is they had plantings or when they were clearing the fairways, the Berkmans and, and some of their crews um, went down the fairways and pulled plants out that were of high quality specimens. And they actually moved them out beyond the fairway lines and the fairways were roughly 70 yards wide or the clearing was 70 yards or 70 feet wide. Um, Maybe seven. I can, it was seventy something yards or feet, but um, feet doesn't seem like it was wide enough. But um, um, but yeah, they, they pulled all the plants and they were gonna, you know, transplant them again as they needed. But as the Olmstead group was going, they identified where all the plants were, and you know, each hole had these, these amount of plants. And uh, um, I need to sit down and look at that some more and, and see how many of the holes retained their original name um that they were that with the plantings that were there um it's just again and to your point of color right using color and texture again well well i think it's it goes there but what they're doing there is um harmonizing and recognizing what the what that site was before oh great point yeah and playing playing to that i mean some courses will do the same thing. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, there's courses that have little chunks of railroad tie as their T T markers because, of, you know, the train tracks went through the property or the club was associated with a train um, company or whatever. But um, each everybody has their way to connect and or most courses have a way to connect with their history or surroundings. Um, some choose to do it and some don't. But what – it, it, you know, with with Augusta, I think, I mean, everything about Augusta is is remarkable, all the way down to their logo. Um, I was, I'd never really given much thought to their logo. You know, it's you can put it up in a room full of people that don't know a squat about it, and they would know exactly what it represents. Probably the most recognized golf logo, and probably one of the best yeah. recognized logos in the world for golfers and non golfers. Correct, and I'm, I'm sitting there going through the letters, and the, um, not all of them have the Augusta logo on them. It was businesses and you know the the, the members' personal um, stationery, but one of the one of them I think it was 33 was the earliest one I saw that has the Augusta national logo with the United States and the flag, and I was just that just I mean what logo I mean. I don't know how strong logos even were back then, but 
um, that is pretty damn strong. It is uh, so strong. And, I agree. It's and, iconic. And, yeah, and, and but you know, it, it it just says a lot about they were definitely defining who they were, and that's you know every club does that. But um, you know, when you, I, I talk about culture a lot, and and it, it comes down to to every club has a chance to define their culture, and some. We'll just let it be the wind um, defining it, and others, you know, are chasing after things that you know doesn't necessarily match what the club represents or the potential. And then, you know, they they've done it in spades and continue to to do it. And uh, but again, you know, not every club should go out and buy a whole bunch of. Um, um, I can't think of any of the holes off the top of my head, but any. Um, they shouldn't be lining their fairway uh, fairways with um, cypress trees or or what have you, and calling it the cypress hole. And you know, each club has their own history, and each club should recognize it. And um, that's a stickler for me: is everybody has you know their own history and, and place in the game, and highlight what's yours. And I think it's Augusta's done just a great job of it. And and it's it's really not that hard. It's just to take the time to recognize what you have and and where you came and, from. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and um, it, you know, just looking at Augusta, you know, the whole idea, you know, there's there's a number of articles um, from the time. I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, obviously, he had just come out of winning the Grand Slam and retiring, and you know, he was. I think it was a little bit right around the same time 32 33 he was doing the the movie in in hollywood spalding and yeah and how to yeah. how to play golf how to play golf correct and you know this is just a little side story but um at one point he came out they were filming and jones invited mckenzie down to southern california they're going to play golf this is 32 33 probably 33 and they go and play annandale uh, which is an a very established uh, club in in LA and um, quite a few different architects um, working there. And uh, they go down and play and Jones, Jones shot a 73 and McKenzie had a 78. Ooh, good shooting there. Yeah. So the whole story is, you know, he wasn't all that good of a golfer early on. And then later on, you know, through the help of um, the the pro at um, Pasatampa, Ernest Jones, his game um, found a, a, a second or maybe even a third gear. <laughs> and uh, he played quite well in his latter years. Um, and uh, probably did, didn't hurt that he, you know, his house backed up to Pasatampa six hole. But um, that, that was just a really cool story. I mean, here he is, um, you know, he, as soon as he's like, I'm going down, it was a whole thing in the paper talking about it. You know, I'm going down because in the papers up here, a couple of them, they would always, um, he would always be the guy to talk to about um, what, I mean, what's going on in, in, in Argentina and, you know, what happened when you got back from, what have you been up to since you've been back from England? And obviously with Bobby Jones, I mean, hard, hard pressed to find a bigger sports um, icon, um, there are quite a few in the late twenties, but he was rather large. And, um, 
and uh, probably more reachable than some of the other um, maybe baseball players or something. The one thing that Jones and McKenzie talk about or is talked about about the course, and I found this interesting, is it's a cost, they, they said it was a course for the forgotten man. I don't know if you've seen that. I, I've seen quotes about the principles of the design, but go forward. Yeah. What do you yeah, mean? So it's, well, it's just they're, they're making sure they're not forgetting the, the, the higher handicap player. Yes. Yes. And the, the idea of the forgotten man is a pretty, it's a huge, it's not a huge depression era, um, conversation, but, um, the Forgotten Man was, um, I'm a history guy for movies too. So I, I'm interested in Carol Lombard and she did a movie called My Man Godfrey and it was about the Forgotten Man. And if any, I mean, it's a great movie, but um, it's just interesting that they're tying into that concept, taking it from a cultural aspect and saying, we're building this golf course for the Forgotten Man. So who is the and, Forgotten Man in their mind? It's just, people in society that are being left behind. Gotcha. And they're just kind of um, tying it into the game of golf, not the game of life. Sure. uh, It was just, every time I read that, I think of Carol Lombard and the guy in that movie. It's just, it's just really interesting that they chose that um, conversation to have um, given, you know, the golf course was, built during the really start. Great Depression. Yeah, absolutely. But when they mean forgotten man, they obviously don't mean the, you know, the common man because it's a private course. Are they, are they talking, (laughs) even then you're not walking on that course, but are they talking about essentially, is it a, a, does it allude to say the, the bogey golfer? Is that a fair statement? The average golfer? Is that, is that what they mean by that? In a way, in a way. I mean, as they talk about the way they want the course to play, I mean, there's there's definitely um, the the way the course is laid out with, you know, um, some of the contours, uh, McKenzie will say the longer hitter benefits from this. Right. But then... And there was only 19 bunkers in the original design, which uh, maybe people don't know now, but um, 19 bunkers. I mean, along the same lines of, of Bayside... Um, mm-hmm. It was a limited bunker strategy, mm-hmm. which allows for the the player who's not as good to at least stay in the game. Maybe not win it, but stay in the game with the better player. But but then you know, there's a lot. Well, for a McKenzie course, there's quite a bit of water. Absolutely, um, with the creeks and eleven and you know the pond or whatever in front of fifteen now. But um, uh, they. You know, the, you know, there's a lot of holes that were the ideal holes, um, and they definitely did not build template holes. They did not um, – they were not trying to build something in the vein of a um, national golf link. Right. Well, let, let's jump into that. Like so the, the holes – a lot of the holes were designed to, I would say, pay homage to many of the courses where Jones claimed his major victories or courses he enjoyed – What's your takeaway there? Let's let's do a let's do a comparison. Let's for you know somebody who said they're templates versus uh, an homage to strategy. They're definitely not templates in in the strictest sense of that word that Anthony hates to use. But let's let's separate those two. So there were several holes that paid homage to the great courses that Jones loved. What separates 
McKinsey and Jones's design from that of Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rayner? Basic, I mean, from for all intents and purposes, it's they identified a characteristic of the whole, not the architecture or even the shape, okay. right? I mean, yeah, just the shape of the the way the um, they basically they weren't going to build something to make it work. It it kind of needed to work given what they're given, even though they had all the dozers. I mean, they probably did push push some stuff around, but. Most of it was to um, remind or to have some aspects of a shot or a. Would it, would it be fair to say the, the strategy? The strategy. Or the yeah. feel? Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, not. You don't look at the road hole at um, Augusta National and say, well, geez, that's like the road hole. That's, I mean, there is like very little comparison between the two. You don't have a road hole bunker. It goes the other direction. You know, when you tell people, I can't remember the hole off the top of my head that's supposed to be allude to the 17th at uh, St. Andrews. But you look at the two and you're just – it It really doesn't make a ton of sense yeah. that it's and a road hole. I think the road hole – It's the 13th hole. It's the 13th hole they, at Augusta National, which I believe is a dogleg left. Oh, trying to remember. Um, yeah, I was going over this, and then uh, yeah, it's the Brian beautiful dog like left. Yeah, that's the thirteenth. Brian posted Amen all corner. those the um, the annual or the first annual booklet. All right, and, yeah, uh, that was amazing. By the way, I need to pick myself yeah. up one of those books. Yeah, and I've had I've had I thought I had the whole thing, but I only had the first two pages, and um. um yeah, those the drawings are amazing, and one of the things uh, we talked about this earlier or off podcast <laughs> um, was you know what I'd be really fascinated in is digging a little deeper into this and in looking at you know the fourth hole at Allwoodley and the fourth or the fourth the thirteenth uh, at Cypress, which they're the one hole is compared to or using some of the merits of those holes in the design and look at what they would have looked like before 1932, 31, 32, when, you know, the end of 31 McKenzie has quite a bit of the routing and, you know, the, the design done. And then, you know, there's still some more work to be done here and there. Um, he was still turning in, a, um, they were trying to put in housing, um, and between Jones and McKenzie, they they or because of Jones and McKenzie, um, the impetus wasn't so much if the golf course was going to be better because they moved to to um, home sites, they were going to do it, and um, and there was some some modifications to it here and there through the communications. And there was probably more than, than that um, behind the scenes, given how little we know about um, how little we have of the information. Um, the club probably has more and um, McKenzie probably had more. And, uh, but you know, it's great that the Olmstead group has retained it and, and is so willing to share it all. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing, um, chance to study, um, 
a great golf course um, and, and get, get a firm bearing on what the golf course was when it first was designed. Um, we all know how much it's changed and continues yeah. to change. Yeah, we'll jump uh, into that. Let me, let me uh, so when I interviewed Dr. Bob Jones IV on the show in 2019, he believed that most of National, Augusta National's design should be attributed to his grandfather, Bobby Jones. Dr. Bob is not going to mind if you disagree with him. What are your thoughts? Tough one. And we don't know, yeah. right? I mean, we don't know, no, but... I'd what like you, to have that conversation with him over with a beer. <laughs> I'm sure he'd have that. He is a splendid person. One of yeah. my favorites. Um, no, it's... Um, I mean, they were definitely... I mean, obviously, um, McKenzie was there as the golf architect and Jones through all his playing um, golf on so many golf courses and at a level that few, I mean uh, most mortals <laughs> aren't familiar with even uh, with tiger uh, um, just the amount of golf he played and didn't play. I mean, it's just hard to, it's just, he's remarkable. Yeah. There's no way to relate it in the modern game. Yeah. And um, he definitely had input. I mean, McKenzie welcomed it. I mean, and both were very complimenting of each other. Correct. And they both, I mean, you know, if you look at it in a way, um, they both stood to learn, even though Jones wasn't necessarily going to take what McKenzie told him about, you know, how this works and that works and, and, um, play better golf, um, cause he was retired. Uh, but maybe he played some of his better golf after that. We don't know. But um, when you get a chance to work with somebody at that level, um, everybody benefits. And it's, I'm, I mean, McKenzie benefited, Jones benefited, uh, Wendell Miller benefits from that. And, uh, you know, there was, when, when you start just doing everything just because that's the way it's done or that's, you know, we have this template for this hole because um, that's where we put it. It's the 17th hole. We're going to, we're going to, you know, have a par three and it's going to play over water. And um, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that was the way McKenzie thought. I mean, he definitely, um, you know, through Cyprus and, you know, Cyprus is a good example with the back to back par threes um, and, you know, just a lot of variety um, and, you know, I thought, um, I thought, um, I heard a very interesting comment, um, in, um, Tom Doak did, he does those things with Andy. Yes. Johnson, fried, uh, egg, fried egg. Yeah. Great stuff. podcast. And it was just really interesting. It was so simple and yet overlooked by probably quite a few people in that, um, you have the 11th hole which is um, very heroic. And then you have the 12th, or is it? Um, gosh darn it. <laughs> I'm on the spot. It's um, strategic, penal, and then... I've totally forgotten. Oh, Doke's comments? Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. It was so good, I forgot it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But the variety is what he was getting at. Yeah, the at. variety in the holes, because each hole calls, I mean, 
we can definitely say 12 is penal. I mean, you got to you got to carry it strategic for 13 and heroic for 11. That's what it was. I don't know how I got that all screwed up, but um, and you know, you know, everybody. We look at that and we watch everybody. I mean, for years and years and years, we'll watch that and 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 it, it's just amazing in the place that it falls in in the routing and um, but in tournament golf, that's amazing. And you know, there's always the people that are like can't believe he routed this the other way around and had the nines reversed. And, you know, there's, there was probably a reason for it. I mean, he didn't write that down, but, um, or maybe he did, we haven't found it yet, but I mean, I've uh, gone through some of the maps, you know, there was a map that had the, the nines reversed and it was in the, the ver- it was very early. I think it was in the 30, 31 had, had um, the nines as they are today. But, oh, really? I haven't seen that. Yeah, and and I've seen and what's what's weird and, and I keep bringing up San Francisco, but I've done so much research on that. I've I've turned up a couple different maps for San Francisco Golf Club, and the the nines are reversed, and it just blows. I just I can't make heads or tails of it because I've only ever seen it represented as it is today. Yet I found two different plans that show it reversed, and I kind of like it reversed, but I like the, the front nine. Well, anyway, that's a different story. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, things change and, you know, the golf course has definitely taken on a, a, a different persona over all the years with this tournament. I mean, it's the only major that continues to go back to the same venue year after year. And, um, and, you know, one of the things, you know, as much as we all love it, we we also, you know, I speak for the golf course architecture guys yeah, is, you know, the course is constantly changing and, um, and trying to, you know, play the yardage game and it's been tightened up and um, it's, it's unfortunate that that has happened, but you know, that's just where all that has, that's where golf has gone. Um, the ball it's goes true. too far. Yeah. And doesn't and, spin as much. Exactly. And, you know, McKenzie talks about the golf ball constantly over all the years. And he always, he built most of his courses where you got off the green and you walked to the tee. It was right there. And, and he, I believe he talks about where he's given room for, for the ball to go further. Well, he didn't give us 60 to it. No. Yeah. How many yards are they putting on 13? I've, I've already forgotten. It's a ton. I, I yeah. you know I liken it to uh, I had Dean Beeman on the show for an interview and and his comment was that I, I thought was appropriate is he didn't mind necessarily the distance that you could hit a driver today he really argued the fact that we took away the spin and what he meant was the spin on those miss hits back in the day if you hit it off the toe you'd never find that ball if it went far you know now we can miss hit it all over the place. Not only does the ball go far, but it goes straight. So we're not, you know, he said back in my day, you really had to dial it down. The long hitters did, you know, he's like, Hogan could have hit it farther. Jack could have hit it farther, but they also knew that there needed to be a level of control. And in our game today, there's no control, but they get away with hitting the long ball. So it's necessitated growing our fairways in which golf course architecture enthusiasts hate adding more bunkers, which 
in this case, golf course architecture enthusiasts hate uh, because you've taken away from what McKinsey gave us. He gave us, mm-hmm. in, in Jones's words, right, the, the course at Cypress Point that he could take back home with him to Georgia. Now, it's not Atlanta, but we'll use Georgia in this perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's gone. Yeah. And, I mean, McKinsey always, I mean, he was involved in all the changes. You know, most of the courses that he remodeled were trying to update the course and modernize it to the modern ball. And and he was adding bunkers and, and you know, maybe pushing the tee back a little further and all that, especially for the, the courses that were from the turn of the last century. But um, golf has changed so much, and, you know, there's – there's images where I mean, it's so easy to see now where um, you can see all the added yardage. You know, everybody's been talking about 13. Um, we're going to have to wait a little longer to see that. Um, but um, with, with, unfortunately it would Cypress point sits so much better from the standpoint that it doesn't host majors. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It hasn't had to change the course to accommodate the play or to narrow the fairways um, to the level that, you know, say Beth Page Black has narrowed their fairways or, um, you know, something that bugs. I mean, for me, I, I, I spend, I don't just look at architecture and, and I look at a lot of different aspects of the game. And one of the things I'm fascinated with is the majors and, and how they have shaped golf to the negative. Um, everybody looks to them. Um, everybody gets excited for them and, and they end up, you know, taking what they see on there to be what golf should be. And everybody talks about how hard golf is. And, you know, again, this goes back to what Jones and McKenzie talk about for the, you know, the forgotten man, we've forgotten the, the higher handicap golfer. We're spending so much time worrying about all these guys hitting the ball. These, you know, New tees, so more bunkers, yeah, and, more and, trees. And this is just a pet peeve of mine. Is or not? A, it's a, it's a, it's a frustration of mine. It's not a pet peeve. Is, is you know, in 1937, the the first course for the U.S. Open over 7,000 yards. I think it was Oakland Hills. Um, it took 60 years to get to 7,200 yards. So that was um, 1997 congressional, right? And then two years later, was it two years? What did I say? Um, 97. It was like a couple years later, whenever it was at Oakmont, it went to 73.50. And now we're talking, you know, Chambers Bay and all that. We're in the, you know, 76 77 yeah aaron hills aaron hills is designed to go to 8,000. yeah and it's just it's so exponential and i mean of course when marion when marion came back in they had they added 452 yards a whole a long well a short par four now (laughs) (laughs) yeah right yeah they they had to add that much yardage to the course. I don't know what they've done. I haven't seen everything that Gill's done there. Um, I haven't even, I've never even been there, um, unfortunately. But I know quite a bit of it from my armchair where I sit. But um, 452 yards, and 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 they, 
you know, I, I know a couple of good friends of mine um, had worked the U.S. Open there and, you know, the preparation coming into it. And, you know, um, Brian Palmer, who's at the Super at um, Terry Eady, he said one of the hardest jobs he had to do there was to paint out the the lines, the fairway lines, because um, they were so narrow. And, um, and it's, you know, you look at places like Bethpage Black and, and then what was it? The PGA Championship a couple of years ago at Baltazar, they they were saying on the on the news on the newscast on the on the the, the uh, telecast telecast they're like yeah they they didn't have to have any they didn't have to add any yardage um, since the last time they were here and I heard that and I was like um, they can't add any yardage there's no more room <laughs> and that's what happened I mean I mean. For all intents and purposes, Augusta National ran out of property and, until they bought the adjacent land and, and moved or moving things back. And um, I'm just, you know, is that's just tournament, uh, you know? Yeah, major. I, you know, it's more than that, though, right? I mean, I think one of the things Augusta loses over that time period, you know, listen, I get it; it hosts the most or one of the most important majors, depending on your perspective, uh, mm-hmm. in the world. And you have to accommodate, unfortunately, due to the technology, the highest level of the game, which essentially is less than 1% of all golfers we're expanding courses for. And I, I get that. I get you need to change the design a little bit. I, but I think what I'd like to see there is to bring back where you can some of the character Mm-hmm. of the original design. Like I get you need to expand it, but there were beautiful fairway bunkers out there and you know the what do they call them the finger bunkers that kind of st- stuck out that gave it a character rather than the round kind of plain bunkers. There's a a hole out there that was an homage to um the home hole at uh St Andrews. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think it was the 7th and the seventh hole used to have a run-up shot. Now I believe it has two bunkers fronting the green. Mm-hmm. I just, I get we can't dial everything back. And people say, I'd love to restore Augusta to what it was. And, and unless they stop hosting the Masters or we have this amazing rollback that is, you know, to that extent, which I don't see that happening. It's probably more of a stop in place versus a roll rollback. But that that course isn't what it was, but I'd love to see some of the character come back, the feel of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Oh, I totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, again, a play the- homage to what it yeah. was versus bringing back what it was. Well, you know, we see it. There's a, there's a lot in golf course architecture where the golden age is still kind of thumbed at in, and obviously it was really bad in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And maybe it's still going on today, but um, it is still going on today. Um, but there's an opportunity given the nature of that golf course and the history that it's given us um, for the members and for for the, the TV audience and, and um, patrons. Um that, you know, I think the hardest part for me in, in watching the course or watching the event there is the width. And um, um, there's just 
the, the variety in play, the options. And, you know, 11 is a perfect example. I mean, that, that hole is so narrow, and it, it's prescribing one option. And uh, it's kind of it, – it's – it's turning it into, you know, a bogey hole. And I mean, as much as we love, I mean, what do we love about that? What do we love so much about Augusta is the back nine, the birdie, you know, the flurry of birdies. And maybe it doesn't start on, I mean, if you get a birdie on 11, you know, they should stop everything and just, and um, walk out and give them a trophy. For That's it. right. It's, That's right. It's, it's become that difficult. Points. Yeah. How rare is that? And um, unless you're Larry Mize and chip it in or something. But, right. Uh, um, but, you know, I'm a historian. So I always look at stuff from inception or even before that, trying to understand how somebody built it, why they built it that way, and why it isn't built that way. And sometimes there's a reason it just didn't work. Um, there's, you know, I always – I keep – I've got my reference points here in, in California. So, I mean, we, we think of, um, you know, some people will say, you know, the original Augusta wasn't as great of a golf course. There's some pictures that, you know, it, it's like, oh, okay, it's kind of, you know, just not seeing bunkers kind of takes um, takes some people's um, interest away from a golf sure, course. Sure, sure. It only had 19. Yeah, I get yeah, that. and. But at the end of the day, it's um, you know you you look at um, some early pictures of you know just the, the features and the mounding mounding like on oh, the eighth yeah. hole. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was definitely into you know he did that there and he did even more substantive work at um, uh, the Jockey Club on that one that one hole that's got the the picture of the horses on top of it or whatever, um, getting getting shaped. Um, he was definitely using landforms more in, you know, there's, there's, um, a, bu- well, um, what is, what is his name? His name is Robert Hunter. Um, he talked about a bunkerless course, um, in his book and, you know, there was courses, you know, people read that and some people went out and tried to do a bunkerless course and, um, it didn't really got to have features. There's, yeah, yeah the people, the bunkers have, have a place in golf more than people want to admit um, given the fact that they don't like being in them, but when they're not and there's none there, it's, um, it yeah. doesn't feel as much You're, like golf. You again. definitely need unusual landforms, right? Yeah. To shape the interest in the eye of the golfer. Now I can't remember probably wrong on this cause I'm a history guy is, am I right? Does the sheep ranch not have bunkers? Corn Crenshaw's yeah. sheep ranch. So, and I have yet to be there. I have yet to play there. Yeah. So, no, the the images would love there to see it. Look fascinating. Um, again, Andy, amazing features, them. though. Amazing features. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. and they have to be. Um, and I mean, I've I've gone out. Where was I in, in Ireland? I went and saw um, in a, a squall. I walked out with I had two two pairs of rain gear on at uh, Cruet Island or Crack Island, up in the northwest of Ireland. And there's bunkers out there, but the landforms on one of the holes, this mound or the, this little mound ties right into the the front end of the bunk or the green. Never ever seen anything like it. And uh, again, it's and that's a more modern course, but um, doesn't feel like it. And uh, and just again, Mackenzie 
definitely um, he could engineer things, but his end point, his end goal was to make it look as natural as possible. And uh, you know, given the property there at Augusta, um, he was able to come up with some, you know, some remarkable stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, uh, Tully, I always say, if, if you want to get an idea and this may be oversaid or, 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 or overplayed, but I would say, if you want to get an idea of what Augusta might've played like 34 through, I don't know, right after the war, um, a good example of that might've been the uh, renovation work that McKinsey did, over in Aiken at Palmetto. Have you been have you been to Palmetto Golf Club? <laughs> yeah. Um, um I'm laughing. Um uh I was there 2004 or 2005. We had a a turf conference in Atlanta. And I drove over there and I had I was playing with my hickory set and um I had one club in there that was a um George Nickel club yeah and george nicole you bet yep a steel shafted club because um my game is even with old clubs and still modern balls to an extent um i find myself um in the trees and um i had broken a club just before i left uh hitting a tree root so i was like i'm not gonna break another club i'm gonna take the steel shafted club and um i go um this was when um Brett Baker, he's now the super at um, Ohupi. He was the superintendent there. We we met briefly and talked, and and um, and um, then I went and met. Um, oh man, the the pro there, Brooks. No, no. Okay. Um, um, he's since retired. He's. Oh, okay. Um, I know the new pro. Okay. Yeah. No, he. We sat there, and he had a, some old clubs that the original pro had. Gave me a tour of the of the Stanford White Clubhouse, which was beautiful, amazing. and it's so simple too. Oh, so simple, <laughs> so simple and, but so good. And we went back out, and I walked over to my clubs, and he looks down at my clubs, and he's I can see him. Um, Tom, is it Tom Moore? Maybe it's Tom Moore, something more, but I'm not. Uh, anyway, he. He looks at my clubs, and he goes, do you mind if I, I take one of them out? And I was like, sure, go ahead. And he pulls out the one club I didn't think he was going to pull out. He pulled out the um, the George Nichol club, uh, Tom Cotton, uh, Henry Cotton, not Tom Cotton. <laughs> and uh, um, pulls it out, starts swinging it. And I can I was like, something's going on here. He's having he's having a moment. And, and then he he just looks at me and goes, when I first, my first year here, I had Henry Cotton came out and played the course and I got to play with him and he was in his seventies and he shot 70 in the high seventies. Um, he was, he was, had a flashback or something. It was, it was really cool to, to be able to share that moment and have, that's, there it is golf. I mean, Golf is pretty amazing in, um, on so many levels for him to get um, so much um, of a flashback to that moment. And, uh, but that course is, is, is 
amazing. It took me, I, I was a single, I was, there was only another guy. Uh, I only saw one other person on the course. I think it took me six and a half hours to play. <laughs> Cause you were just enamored. I, I was wrapped up. I was taking pictures of just about everything. And, um, um, I had just gotten done with 15. 15 is pretty close as just, um, to the, as you're playing 15, just left of the 18th green, if I remember correctly. And I'm walking by the pro shop. As I, as you can imagine, I was talking with everybody in the pro shop and the assistant came out and said, have a wonderful time. It was so nice to meet you. And, and I was like, I still have three holes to play. And she's like, really? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And, um, I didn't see her for like another hour and a half. <laughs> oh, funny. You know, I was out there, this was two years ago, right before we went to Augusta for the, the tournament. And uh, their pro out there now is Brooks Blackburn, I believe. One of the nicest pros I've ever met. And we played 18. I played fast, but I was taking photos of everything and just enamored and blown away. And we finished 18 and, and Brooks came up to me. He goes, what do you think? I was like, I just, I, I really didn't even have words, which is rare for me. And he goes, why don't you just go play it again? And so we went out to play it again, and I don't I don't know where we were. We we're probably the ninth hole, and Brooks comes out in his cart, and he goes, "Hey, I'm leaving because you know it's getting close to sundown." Yeah. And he goes, and I go, "Oh, oh gosh, I we can get off the course." He goes, "No, no, no, no. You guys finish walking. Um, by the way, if you want, I left the snack shack open. Just grab whatever you want. I mean, just the nicest guy, the yeah. nicest guy, and the course." Um, uh, it just blows me away. There's an argument that it could be, I, I think it definitely is, uh, the, f- the first 18 hole golf course in the Southeast. It is right behind, uh, the idea of Chicago golf club and Shinnecock for being one of the first 18 hole golf courses in the United States. But you can feel whether true or not, you can feel McKenzie there. Even though he just renovated that course, he redid the greens. I think he redid some bunkers, but that course is spectacular. It feels like you're playing a McKinsey design. Would you agree? Yeah, um, I would, to an extent. I, I believe yeah, fire away. The bunkers. I, I think I've seen pictures where the. Where I the think the greens were, were sand prior to him getting there. I think he grassed them. I think there was still grass after he left. I think Ross. I, I I'm a little. It's been a while since I've thought about. Well. It's not that I haven't thought about Palmetto. Sure, sure. The other day, their assistant followed me on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, so I was thinking about it again. But um, um, I seem to recall I've got pictures where where it shows um, the bunkers definitely having the hand of McKenzie, but then the greens were still sand. Um, but – that's that's it's been a while since I've looked at my Palmetto stuff. So I won't um, I won't quote you on that. Yeah, Th- they can comment. Brooks, you can comment on Twitter. Call mm-hmm. us out on that one. Really call him out because I didn't say that. Um, what? Let me ask you this. So you know he's doing Palmetto. From what I understand, he's taking perhaps materials from Augusta National in that that idea of being thrifty and using it at both sites. What? 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 What do we take away from? Alistair McKenzie's touch, his original touch on Augusta National. Like, what's your takeaway? I mean, obviously, thrifty is definitely, or, or maybe efficient mm-hmm. is a good word. 
But when you see yeah. that original design, let's let's take away the course that exists now. You've probably seen enough photos and 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 the map, no, of I course. Haven't. What what you know? We need more. Okay, we need more. There's so, always I always have room for more. That's um, right. Just uh, um, I mean, this was his opportunity. I mean, there's very few opportunities that you get to um, to build something for somebody of such stature that uh, Bobby Jones held at that moment. And, um, and the influence you have with him, um, and vice versa. And, uh, and just that opportunity to, you know, kind of had free reign, I would suspect. I mean, Jones definitely wants to have, um, an amazing golf course and expects, I mean, pretty much expects that given what he saw at, um, at Cypress point in Pasa Tampo and maybe uh, it'd be nice to see if he played anything else after that. Um, but, uh, the, the, the use of the land, the use of the creeks, um, and just allowing the flow of the property to kind of, again, I've never been there, but, uh, you know, just, you know, you look at the topo maps and just kind of see, see what's going on. And we'll both appreciate uh, it when we play there together, Tully. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to be there. Yeah. Um, I would love the opportunity to be honest with you. I'm the same way. I I would just adore the opportunity to walk it unfettered. You know, there's the ruins of the old mill running down one core. I, I don't know if it still exists, but there was an old mill on one of the holes, uh, the 12th hole, uh, the famous par three is sits on an Indian burial ground, which I always find is interesting with that being amen corner. Um, but like, I, I would just like to explore the lesser known things mm-hmm. at Augusta as much as play it. Yeah. I don't even want to play it. I don't, if I'm going to see a golf course, like, I mean, I, I had so much fun. You know, I had the opportunity uh, with Bigga to be on the support team at Portrush last year. Yeah, I heard, I read about and that. That's fantastic. As much as I enjoyed every minute of that, but I, the grandstands were there, <laughs> and uh, it just kind of and it, you know they don't do grandstands. They're they're a lot more subdued. Absolutely, um, with the exception of eighteen. But what a what an amazing setting that is. I sat up there when Lowry came in. Oh my God. Um, but everywhere else, there isn't that much. Pers- I, I was just at Pebble just, you know, the month prior. Um, the contrast is pretty strong. Um, but what I'm, my point is, is just landforms. So when I go see a golf course, I want to see the landforms and how the, where things are tie in or, you know, if, you know, we've got a couple of places where they cut and filled here, but not many. I mean, a lot of everything's pretty much spoken for, just built into the hillsides. And I think that's the natural beauty of the property is um, there's not a lot of stuff built up with the exception of some tees here and there are built into hillsides, which aren't, still aren't the original tees here. But um, and just that natural, um, the flow, um, you know, good example of the flow as presented in some of his plans is, you know, I always, I have a lot of respect for the work at Valley club, um, that, that 
Doak and Urbina did and, you know, um, Roger Robarge, the superintendent there, is looking after and doing a good job, um, mudslides and all. Um, but you look at those plans and you can see all the tie-ins. They got the short, the short grass mowed down between the greens and tees in a lot of places. And um, this, it's the golf course is connected and it's, you know, for, for so long it was, we had to separate holes and it, and that's been one of the hardest things to get around in golf is um, the idea of trees on a golf course. You know, there, there can be places for them, but, um, we kind of got a little, you know, one tree is good. A couple trees aren't bad, but man, we got a little crazy. And the one thing that's interesting is, you know, how many courses are planting trees or, you know, putting trees in a golf course. Most seem to be taking them out. Yeah. And which is I, good news. Yeah. And I had a, a conversation with a member here once and, and, um, you know, there was some uh, questioning of why we're taking trees out. And the argument that was made was, well, they're planting them at Augusta. And I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> let me let me explain why they're planting them here and there. I mean, the trees down the, the right-hand side of 11 um, and some more trees on 15. And, you know, just the list goes on. Um, it, on a... Pr- again there's a place for trees here and there and you know mckenzie talks about a line of soldiers and and um but there's something to be said for for broad views and long views olmstead you know used them in his parks and and uh you know meadow club we have these amazing views and i keep coming back to that in and especially i mean i'm out was out mowing uh, aprons today um, because we're still shut down um, here in California, just doing essential maintenance, just keeping the grass cut. And it's just amazing. Um, I was mowing two apron and I'd never noticed it before, but there's, you know, behind the, the there's bunkers short right of the green. There's a little, ho- uh, not a hollow, but a little cut. Not even a cut. There's mounds and the, the the bunkers are tied into a a mound, and then there's a little mound on the back. And in between that, if you stand just short of the green by the fairway bunker, that's you know about forty yards short of the green, you could see the bunkers on fourteen. And but I can only see a little bit of it because um, a willow has grown up in the creek, and it's just like wow. I mean the the there's more than just it's not happenstance that that's there. Yeah, he's still teaching he's all these years learning. later. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, there's the more we pull back the trees here, the more vistas are opened, and um, it, it just gets the golf course, in my opinion, just keeps getting better and better, and and there's this sense of anticipation as you as you go around a golf course if a golf course doesn't get you excited, either one, you need to play better or, or find a better, golf find a better course. Of course. Yeah. But there should be some anticipation. I mean, in you look out and you see a whole, you know, I mean, on our first fairway, you walk down the first fairway, you can see, 
you can see 16 green off in the distance and and then you get to 13 t see it again and it's just like it just you know it just kind of builds up your um it's your you have a story that's going on um right before your eyes and and um in your writing that's the probably the coolest part and but that whole time you're i mean you know some you know they always used to complain about blind holes and you know the whole locations back in the day because you know the, um, the way the course were designed but you know as you're going around a golf course if you're a good golfer what are you you're, you're paying attention to where the whole location is on 16 or four or two or whatever and if you're playing partner isn't or your competitor you have that advantage to know oh it's in the back left of, of three today i want to i want to i want to play down the right hand side or maybe down the left hand side depending on what kind of ball flight i have but um there's there's something to be said for for um paying attention to the routing and and it's hard not to on a mckenzie course in my opinion for for all the greatness that we get from Augusta National and that that Alistair McKenzie gave us, it also represents a sad time for McKenzie. Can you can you go into the the sadness behind the full story, if you will, of Augusta National beyond, beyond the design, um, and then getting into you know the last part of his life and perhaps the debt not paid. Yeah. Um. You know, it's with all the work that he put in there and the relationships he he had with you know obviously Wendell Miller and and Jones and Clifford Roberts and um not to be you know, he, he probably didn't have any opportunity to know that he wouldn't be there for the uh, you know the inaugural um, inv- invitational yeah Augusta they, uh, National Invitational which became the Masters thirty four. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, the, the hardest part is probably just, you know, for everybody it was, I mean, you, you go back and look, I mean, having read quite a bit of the, uh, Olmstead, uh, correspondence, um, Olmstead, the firm was, you know, trying to, to get paid for their outstanding, um, work there and, uh, and, um, they were writing and Clifford Roberts was responding saying, Hey, you know, we're, things are tight and uh, we'll see what we can do right now. We have nothing. And, you know, we're, re- they, you know, they were definitely scrambling and you know, they restructured and I don't know if they filed bankruptcy. I didn't, it wasn't that clear, but they, they, um, maybe they did because they came at one point, there was a letter that, um, I think they put, yeah, they had shares. I think they sold shares to the community, right? And I think there were even female shareholders that still weren't members, Yeah, which is really fascinating. They gave some to Olmstead, and they didn't even put them on their books. They they said, they had a little note on the bottom, said, don't put these in the books because they're worthless. Oh, no. It says that? Oh, my gosh. That's brilliant. Yeah. And... um. So they were getting letters, um, you know, there's, um, um, in golf auction, there's a, on .com, um, there's a letter, 
what 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 I found interesting was how much the Berkmans were still involved after everything. In there, there's a letter from one of the Berkmans. I couldn't read the name, um, but it was a letter back in a response to a letter sent by Wendell Miller, um, where Wendell is you know asking to get paid and um, telling of the hardship that they're going through. And man, it was the first paragraph is pretty. It was a tough one to read. Just you know one not knowing what he said, you know, the hardships and, and, um, his mother was, his mother, or his wife, Emma's mother was quite ill. And, um, just, it was, it, it was, it's just interesting reading stuff that was written so long ago and how they didn't, they wrote with a lot. They wrote differently <laughs> and they weren't, afraid to say what they had to say. They just kind of came out and said it. And, um, and this pertains to the bankruptcy file, um, you know, not the bankruptcy, but, you know, asking for the money and, you know, Clifford Roberts um, for the club wrote to Olmstead firm, the firm saying, Hey, we're going to host um, this invitational. Would you like to advertise or to acknowledge um the work that you did here and, uh, and, um, and if you do that, it's, you know, here are the, the pricing options. And if you do that, then we can, then we can, um, um, reduce our money that we owe you. No. (laughs) And we'd like to pay you with your own money, please. Yes. And, uh, Clifford Roberts, folks. I mean, he deserves his own podcast right there. I mean, if there isn't a man that has been more villainized in golf, yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, they're probably at wit's end trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do to make this work. They, they've been, they've already invested, um, you know, through whoever, um, you know, their um, members and soon to be members. Hopefully, at that point, um, they're just looking to to figure out, you know, I don't know when they planned on having this tournament, but they sure. See, I mean, the way this little story plays out, it sounds like it played out to quite a few of their their um, people they owed money to. Oh, I have zero. I mean, again, it's in the Great Depression. It was not even what three, three, four years in, five years in, nineteen thirty four. And you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a pretty smart move. To I mean, they're trying every bit, everything they can to keep the golf course. Unfortunately, they can't play. They, you know, um, they can't pay the people they owe the money to. Um, but they can't do that either. If they keep going in the negative, they have to figure out ways. And one of the ways was, you know, this this really nice program that they put together and you know had people use their own money to to pay for it <laughs> and help offset their costs and hopefully down the road help them to. Um, to um, offset some of their debt, but you know they still, you know, years later. I mean, this was um, that was in '34, so '35. The letter from uh, Berkman or whatever to uh, Wendell was in '35, so it was it's still going on. A deep and, stretch, yeah, yeah. So, and, and for McKenzie, I mean, by '35, he's he's already out of the picture, but yeah. He dies in January 1934. Yeah, and 
you know, he was, you know, at one point he was, you know, reaching out to, there was some other work that they were doing. Um, you know, there was some work at Cyprus of some, I believe of some greenkeeping duties. Is this post, this is post Augusta national right around the time. Probably. Yeah. I, that was one of the questions I was going to go to is, I mean, he finishes his work at Augusta. Do we know if he had any, I mean, it's, it's, it's now set in stone that that was the last course that he designed. Or were there any courses upcoming that he was scheduled to design? It's obviously the the Great Depression. We're in the throes of the Great Depression. Is there any real work that we know of that he was doing before he passes away in January 1934? Yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. As you mentioned, I mean, it's everything's drying up so fast. Yeah, absolutely. And, And there was courses in our area that were... Um, well, there was one course built in our area in 35, but yeah, that was rare. That's rare. Very rare. And, um, was it a public works project? No, that would have no. been prior to world war two. So it wouldn't have been, no, it wasn't. It was, um, and I'm still trying to figure out who designed it. It was, it was a course, um, just down the hill from us, uh, sleepy hollow, um, was the name, but, uh, said, as they always say, an expert golf architect, but, um, still haven't figured out who, um, who, was involved but it was built and uh some golf balls still turn up in people's yards uh, when they dig up stuff and the one of the first tees you can still see the first tee um so yeah there's there's some remnants but um you know they did other things you know well they i i should qualify that um um the american golf course construction company with robert hunter um jr um, did other work in regards to um, Santa, uh, Santa Cruz Golf and Country Club. Um, they re- did some reseeding of the fairways. That was an old Tom Bendelow course. Um, so if you're at Pasa Tiempo and looking at the map, um, De-, De La Vega is off to the right, which is a later public course. And then Santa Cruz Golf and Country Club was is just off to the left at Pogo Nip. It's, that's what it's called now. But the clubhouse is still there. I, have a, I was given a routing map, and I've probably walked it three or four different times. And the golf course is still there. But they did work at um, uh, Rio del Rio de Rio del Mar or something, Aptos Beach, which was an old. It's a Willie Lock course. They came in and, and did some work there. And then I've even got Hunter Junior doing stuff later up in Tahoe, and I believe there was some work they did. That you can see some McKenzie styling bunkers and some early thirty, excuse me, mid thirties pitchers. Um, so they got they got around pretty good. Um, but yeah, when McKenzie dies, uh, he's listed. Uh, there's an obituary that I, I kind of can't believe it's was published this way, but it actually lists his assets. Um, and they, they, I believe they list him with fifteen thousand dollars worth of assets, which at its time sounds like a lot of money. But when you look at the assets outside of his home, most of it was money that was owed to him by different golf courses. Yeah. So he essentially dies relatively penniless. Is that fair to say? Pretty much. And I mean, you know, he just unfortunately, I mean, he had his house built there um, by William Worcester and won a you know it's 
won a competition or came in pretty close to it. And, uh, you know, boom, you know, he dies. His, you know, his wife gives his clubs off to somebody else on the curb. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, they, it, it, you know, there's, you know, there, there's quite a few articles where they talk about the, the people that owe him money, some clubs that he didn't even, that, you know, one of them was Cappuccino Golf and Country Club where um, Bear eventually got the job, but they still owed him money for the work that he did. Just consulting work, right? Yeah. So, I mean, then you have all, there's so many courses that, that they designed that weren't built that were, I mean, I think I mentioned maybe, I don't know if I mentioned the one at um, St. Mary's College that I just found a couple months ago. And then Woodside, um, which didn't get built, that was done by Stanford. And, you know, the property's still there, and um, it's it's just sitting there, and it's, it's heavily protected. It's like an, um, Oh, sure. So yeah, it's not going to, not going to happen. Well, to sum us up, um, not all great stories have great endings. Uh, This is obviously a sad ending for McKenzie. What should we take away from the the life and times of Alistair McKenzie? I mean, he had a, a, a unusual life. He had an exciting life, one of war, uh, and being a surgeon to, uh, getting into the art of camouflage and then taking that art, translating it to golf, connecting with Allison and Colt and forming a company, going it on his own and traveling the world, uh, building unbelievable golf courses in Ireland, England, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and in North America. What, how best should people, how do we take, what's the takeaway? How do we reflect on that? Um, my quick answer is honor, <laughs> respect the work that he did, and maybe not, as a club, take a look in the mirror and 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 um, you know it's it's interesting. And you know, again, we come back to the chronology that we talk about. Um, every, there's so many people that want to be associated with what he did, and for all the reasons you mentioned and, you know, a lot of things we touch on just um, his ability to design a course and, you know, again, hand it off to his partners for the most part to finish. But again, he didn't pick bad partners and they, they all did a really good job. And uh, he, he basically just, you know, at the end of the day, he found it something that he really liked to do and took advantage of the possibilities that that offered. And, um, he did a damn good job of it and saw the world and, you know, left us with a lot of really good golf courses and some that should be a lot better than they are. And, you know, I've been blessed here at Meadow Club, you know, you know, from ever since I've been here, the fairways have been as wide as we can, you know, there's some places we can make them wider. I'm always looking to, I want to see my fairway number get up higher anyway. Um, but, you know, just understanding the principles and the guidelines that, they, that he, I mean, he, he laid out a lot of stuff for us to understand in, you know, the 13 principles, you know, be it as they may. In, um, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, there's clubs that are like, oh, rah, 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 we're McKinsey. And then you look at it and it's like, um, 
where are you guys at? You, um, these bunkers are all wrong or the course is too narrow or there's too many trees or they've redesigned all the, the greens. Um, the, I mean, the course in Sacramento, um, it doesn't get much attention for me because they've, you know, they, they got all this money to do work on it. And then they just went in and changed a whole number of the greens. And it's like, which course is this? Um, uh, yeah. Sacramento Muni. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Cause I, at some point I try to hang on. To, I mean, when you're in, I'm as invested as I am. I can, yeah. I want to stay with positive things. No, I get that. I get because, that. Because, as you know, as a historian, you go to a golf course and it's like, you go there and you see something and it's like, it's so far from what it should be. Yeah. And it's like, how could this happen? And, but my God, I mean, it's happened 10 times over at so many golf courses. But we have this opportunity, you know, mo- you know hopefully most clubs or some clubs have um, aerials to use or, you know, God forbid they have the plans yeah. sitting up in somebody's office. Or, oh, you're talking about Hagen Oaks. That's the Hagen one we're referring. Oaks. Hagen Oaks. Yeah. Sorry. Hagen yeah. Oaks. Yeah. And, um, yeah, all the opportunity there. Plans. They had every greens plan drawn. And up. a late design in his career, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, it it's was. 1932, right before Augusta right. National and Bayside. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you have all those connections and, you know, you know, again, you know, here we have one of the greatest golf course architects, RNA member, um, you know, brought into that fold by um, HS Colt, uh, none other. And, you know, then, you know, HS Colt, for some reason, isn't, they don't go to him or he isn't asked or maybe he didn't want to do it. I have no idea. Maybe Adam can pontificate on that. But McKenzie gets the job of, um, uh, 24 25 or whatever it was i think it was 23 24 um to draw a map of st andrews and you know look at the golf course and um maybe i'm sure well one would think that he spent some time with colt talking about it and you know played golf with him probably over the you know over some years and uh i, I mean all those things are you know at the end of the day with this t- the chronology we answer questions, but we just end up with more. And, yeah, that's great. And it just it just feeds. I'm I'm being fed constantly by that concept, and I wish I had more time to to do the research I want to do. Why do we have jobs, but, right? Yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, we're, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I'm bringing this up one because I don't know the answer. And two, I want to know the answer. And and it, it comes to, there's always the talk of Donald Ross and, and Alistair McKenzie. And did Alistair McKenzie steal the job that Donald Ross should have had, could have had, would have had, had Jones not played Cypress Point or had, that, had some other experience? But, you know, there's... For Donald Ross, there's a lot of, I mean, he has a lot of good courses, and then he has great courses in, you know, right up there is uh, Piner's number two in Seminole. And my question 
and I'm still trying to understand it and is, you know, uh, Brad spoke to Ross's ability to, um, not his ability, well, it wasn't an ability that he had, you know, as a designer, but there's not a Donald Ross bunker. But what I would say about Seminole, if you look at the earliest pictures of when it was first built, those are not Donald Ross bunkers. In, in, in that they look more, in, in, in they would feel more at home or in place with a McKenzie or a Billy Bell design. So why or how did that change happen? Was it was Seminole the only one that that happened to? And, and you know, there is the, you know, Donald Ross and Robert Hunter were close friends. And I know that, I mean, there's so much to be said about Donald Ross, but uh, Robert Hunter, I mean, I've done, um, you know, Alan Brawley did the lion's share of research on him. And I've, I'm so intrigued with him, probably even more with him than I am of McKenzie, which is kind of crazy to say, but I, um, Robert Hunter is so interesting on so many levels. Um, the socialist and, architect. Yeah. And, and an author and, you know, and all these other things. He, he did quite a few other things and, um, but one of the he was close friends with Travis and, and and Donald Ross and I know in 28 that he traveled into the southeast and you know he played um, and wrote about oh boy Southern Pines I think he wrote an article about what had some of the work that had been done there or something to that effect it was in the whatever the the, the little newsletter that they had down in Pinehurst and. Um, I'm wondering if the, I, I don't, I, I'm just as a researcher, historian, I guess at this point, speculator, speculating on was seminal something more than, than just a golf course that was meant to, um, I mean, obviously he doesn't know, well, I guess he would know. I'm kind of thinking out loud, obviously right here. Um, you know, we know by that point, we probably know the U S amateurs at Pebble beach for the next year. And he already knows Cypress points open cause Robert Hunter's probably shared pictures with him. And, uh, no, I, it's just a question. Was I mean, there, yeah. Was there an array of influence? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that course stands out for, it mind. does, it does. And, you know, just, on its own merit. I mean, I've not been there. I've, I've only heard good things. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, I, I've been fortunate to play it twice and I would say it definitely stands out from, it's just different than Essex, which I love by the way, County. Um, I love Pinehurst number two. I played it several times and I've played Seminole several times and it, it stands out. It's definitely different. It's have you a, seen, have you seen the early bunkering though? The early bunkering? Yes. I've seen photographs of it, obviously. Yes. And I've seen yeah. the restoration of Corin Crenshaw's work there. Yeah, because the, I mean, as good as that is, it's the the earlier stuff. It's still not that that first rendition. Yeah. Um, 
much more and, drastic. Uh, yeah, the, I'll, I'll I'll dig up. I, it won't take me long to dig it up, but I'll when this podcast comes out, I'll I'll put a couple pictures out because um, it's it just definitely stands out. And in um, again, you know, roundabout way, I mean, everybody gets influenced. I mean, and golf is about as trendy as they get. That's and, true. Look at today, right? Down to you know to whatever color shirts everybody's going to wear, yeah. or what color belt, but it, it it does come across as you know, you know the natural looking bunkers are in, you know, in in restorations. You know, how far do we take it? Do we take it too far? And you know, at some point, or do we restore course? I mean, we we've gone so far away in so many areas from what some of these original golf courses were thinking we're going to, I mean, again, I'll even back up even further. We went from Lynx land to, to the early courses like Royal mid Surrey that had these geometric, huge, I mean, I keep saying equestrian style. No, it's fair. I, I think that's what we called it. Um, I think with yeah. who, I can't remember. Was that with Anthony? I think I was talking about Anthony about yeah. that, but all the cross bunkers and, yeah. you know, um, and that was a trend, and then they went away from that, and and you know there's still remnants. I mean, we somebody posted a picture of some old um, Varden-esque um, bunker shapes that um, Lee Patterson had some images or drawings that were done, really amazing. Yes, um, they were. Um, you know, again, you know, to heap some praise on some other people like like Lee in England. I've never met him. I've He's a social media friend. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I've yeah. never met Lee or even talked to him, but I, I go, yeah. I mean, like verbally yeah. talk to him. But he's going through these magazines and pulling stuff out that if I wasn't, I mean, if I had my. That's Lee Patterson for all you out there. Yeah. You yeah. need to follow Golf him. Chronicle. Yep. Golf Chronicle. Yeah. If you are out there on Twitter, he's a must follow. Yeah. And just the, um, the articles and just these old magazines. I mean, there's so many old magazines in, in the California um, that I've gone through, um, the Fairway Country Club, and um, and then there was a couple other ones that were for shorter runs, and and then even excuse me, the, in the early 1900s it was cycling and golf, or and then later on it was uh, polo and golf and aviation and golf. I mean. Um, Golf just keeps keeps moving along, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, find something you enjoy. Um, not everybody can can have the benefit of um, being at a McKenzie course, or I mean, you know, in some shape, uh, way, or, or or another, as a patron, or as a golfer, or just somebody walking by or driving by. It's on seventeenth. 17 mile drive. But, um, the one thing that for me that stands out for McKenzie is when a course is well looked after, um, you see it, um, you have a pretty good idea that that's a McKenzie course. Yeah, I agree. So let me, let me, let's end with this question. Um, for the listeners out there, we have thousands of listeners listening to this right now. Um, and by right now, I mean right now when they're listening to it and right now, right now is where you record it. Uh, but, what what would you suggest if they want to learn more about Dr. Alistair McKenzie? Um, you, we have the Alistair McKenzie Chronicle, 
Chronicles. Um, what chronology? Thank you. And what what other reading materials would you suggest they dive into to to get a better idea of the man, the the golf course architect, and the life and times? Well, you just said the the last part there is is it the life and times? I believe it is. Yeah, but the problem with that is it's so crazy limited edition, Uh, folks. Yeah. Right, it's much so, like the CB McDonald book that you have to have. That's so expensive. Yeah, yeah. and that's it's frustrating because um, you know architecture isn't that hard to understand. Um, it for some reason, I mean, we're not talking about the building. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about you know soil pushed up, greens made, bunkers made, sand splashed in. And strategically placing bunkers, or you know, or whatnot, it, it really isn't that complicated. But for some reason, um, people they either feel like they don't have to invest time in it. But I, you know, as I've kind of alluded to before, it's the more you know about the course and um, you know the designer. I think I always think that helps. But you know, just paying attention to what the golf course is doing, why a bunker's here. And it really it doesn't get that hard um, for whatever reason. Most people, you know, the template is pretty accessible for a lot of people to understand. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a, a, a step in the right direction. But, um, you know, for me, um, one of my favorite books that I point people towards because it pulls so many things together and is written really well is um, – um, Shackelford's book, and it's gonna not. Uh, Alistair McKenzie's. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were gonna go with his Cypress Point book. Go ahead. Well, that's well. You should have that already for the photos uh, alone. Yeah, um, it's um, and I apologize, uh, but you know, just if you go on his site, there all his books are on there. Not to. Um, the other book, by the way, was the life and work of Doctor Alistair McKenzie okay. that we were. Yeah. But, you know, I'll give people a one, a, a cheap one, right? You can usually pick it up for five bucks on eBay, uh, is The Spirit of St. Andrews, mm-hmm. which has its own little funny story that it was published so many years after his death. Mm-hmm. And, and it's probably, you know, we, I think I mentioned the the book that he was writing in 31, which this probably turned into that, was Golf, War, and Peace, or Peace, War, Golf, or whatever it was called. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I have, as much of a researcher as I am, I, I have not been able to read that book from finish, start to finish. Really? And I can't, I, I have a hard time with his writing style. <laughs> I get frustrated because he always tells all these little stories and it's like, I don't want to hear the stories. I want to I hear how you design this hole or, um, I mean... As a historian, I wish I could go back and give him a camera, walk him over, tell him to take a picture from this angle, this angle, and that angle. And I think as for everything that I just don't I don't understand, or maybe it just wasn't thought of as um, something that two guys would be talking about for eight hours. Right. Right. <laughs> Eighty-three years later, um, or ninety-three years, and it's like. Um, as much as they talked about it amongst themselves as architects and golfers, um, 
we've always talked about architecture. Um, we may not call it architecture. It's just that damn bunker. The green is stupid or, or it's one of the best greens I've ever played. You know, there's usually some good things said, um, as well, but, um, Golf I think isn't that complicated. Is the, the book we were referring to? Is it uh, the Good Doctor Returns? No, no. no I'm trying to think what book it was. I'm going through my yeah. brain here, trying to remember what Jeff's yeah, book. And I feel bad, Jeff. It, I'm so sorry. Um, because he he wrote a book kind of like um, because George C. Thomas wrote uh, Golf Architecture in America. He wrote like a, a a version where he he wrote this years and years ago, but it's it's kind of um. It just hasn't, I mean, um, hasn't needed to be um, edited because we're still dealing with the same issues with the golf ball and and all that stuff. But um, and that's been going on, you know, forever. Um, but the book is is about architecture. It's not the golden age of golf design, which is a great book in its own right. And that's a good book for people to. I was, I've given that out a couple times. I think it's still on loan to somebody at the moment. You'll never um, see it again. Yeah, I got to stop doing that. Yeah, my library's dwindling. But um, I want people to learn stuff and um, and understand um, that, you know, modern, there's modern, I mean, there's good modern golf and there's good golden age stuff and there's bad golden age stuff and there's bad modern golf. It's You're always going to have, one or the other, or a whole bunch in between. But to be able to understand what you're seeing, um, we had a pro up here that would just go out and play anything and talk about how great it was. And I'm like, well, what's so great about that place? And he goes, I'm playing golf, Tully. Just get over it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Different perspective. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I'm, for me, it's like, I can't I can't go there. I don't want to go see that course. I want If I'm going to drive that far, I'm going to go over here because this course is 85 years older and better, but that's me. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Tully. I, I mean, it's a four part podcast. I think we were coming into this. thinking it was going to be three. Uh, whoever, whoever predicted four, if you pick that in your pool, folks, you win. Technically I could make this five, but we're this, this episode is going to be a little long. I think we're about an hour and a half on the, the final podcast, uh, which yeah. I think hits all those great topics though. It hits, a lot of Augusta National Palmetto, which is a personal favorite of mine that he touched. And then just how it ended and what he means to the game is important. So yeah. thank you so much for joining us on the show. It really it makes a big difference to me, and hopefully it made a big uh, difference to a lot of our listeners. Oh, well, I, it was my pleasure. And um, the more I think about this stuff, the deeper I go. So here <laughs> I got some more stuff to go research later, but uh, thank you. And, um, you know, the one thing, I, if there's one thing I'd like to end with is just to acknowledge the other guys that are in that research group with me. Absolutely. Please do. I didn't get it right the first time. And I, I didn't want to leave anybody out and I'm not. So it's uh, Nick Leaf, Neil Crafter, myself, Neil Carlton, Mark Bourgeois, or that's I can't say it any other way. I think I'm saying it right. Mark Rowlandson and Nick Norton. And of all those guys, I've only met Neil, Nick, and Mark. Mark once, and uh, and Nick gave me a tour. I've met Nick quite a few times, but he's uh, the past historian at Alwoodley and uh, an upstanding gentleman. 
Um, one of my favorites. Who would have thought that I met you in passing in San Diego and we'd have a four-part podcast within a year? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Only in the world today. Only in the I world think, today. Uh, there's. I'm going to still say Mike Vesley. He's, he's still holding out for 11. I just think he's... <laughs> well, well, part five starts next week, folks. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks again. Really appreciate Definitely. it. All right. Thank you. This concludes the four-part podcast on the history of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. A very special thanks to Sean Tully, the director of grounds at Alistair McKenzie's very own Meadow Club. Please join us for episode 37, where Brett Lawrence and Sven Nilsson join us to discuss the lost routings of Cypress Point, and perhaps the lost routing by Seth Rayner. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.